As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called uh, David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. Now there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. And a harmful spirit came from the Lord upon Saul, as he sat in his house with, sat in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul brought, sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that, that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Right, we're going to stop there for a moment. Um, listen, so we have seen, if, if we go back to chapter 16, um, initially kind of David and Saul's interaction was that, that Saul, in, in, honestly in his madness, right, in his difficulty, in his lack of stability, was soothed by the ministry and the music of David, Right? If we go to chapter 17, the, the King Saul benefits greatly because of right, David killing Goliath. So we've seen him soothed and benefited. If we go to chapter 18, he's just jealous as the women are singing songs and, and attributing positive things to Saul, but, but going above and beyond for David. Right, We begin to see jealousy and rage and anger set in. Um, in chapter 18, though, we also see David become family with Saul as he um, becomes a son-in-law, marrying um, one of Saul's daughters, Michael, right? And so in just a few chapters, we've seen David ministering to Saul, benefiting the kingdom in Saul, hated by Saul, into the family, right? Um, and, and we're seeing the, the, the instability of Saul. He's trying to grip and to hold on to something that's no longer his to hold on to, right? The, the crown has been taken from him, and he's, he's going to see out his, his time, but right, the, the, the crown is going to be given, the kingship is going to be given to David and to his lineage. And Saul is, knows this, and yet he is holding desperately on to something that he cannot hold on to. So we see this back and forth of him going, hey, I want to kill him, I'm going to throw a spear at him like we saw last week, and into this week where Jonathan's able to like rationally talk to him and say, Dad, don't, don't do this. He's benefited you. Like He's innocent. Okay, I'll reconcile with him. I won't do it. And then in a moment, right, he's ready to kill him again. There's just this, this back and forth. And would we be reminded that there's nothing new under the sun? Right? That, that politics, um, right, there's paranoia in politics, there's corruption, there's a desire for power, there is a desire for greed. Like, that these things are not new. They're old. And they're consistent. And that there's nothing new under the sun. And so as we see the second attempt on his life, um, it's really going to be the start, as we look this morning in this narrative section, of multiple murder attempts. So let's pick up in verse 11. So Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it on the bed. It's an idol, like, like, a, like a statue is what you're, you need to picture here. Laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. So Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus? And let my enemy go so that he has escaped 
And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go, why should I kill you? All right, listen, so last week Paul um, mentioned that, that Michael may have had kind of a, an issue with, with idol worship, right? So we now see that that is that's true, right? That she has this idol um, at her disposal, and so her and David work on a plan, a ruse. He escapes, she basically, right, um, builds a, a body in a bed, and then it uses her prominence as the daughter of the king. So when the messengers initially come, she's able to say, no, 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 he's sick, right? And, and you can imagine them going, oh, the king sent us, but this is the daughter of the king, right? I'm in an awkward position, right? It's like you're watching an HBO miniseries, right? I mean, really. And, and so, she, so they go back, and David's like, it's easier to kill him if he's in bed. Bring him in the bed to me to kill him. And so this... this kind of humorous and awkward scene, right, of realizing that's goat hair and a statue, that's not David. And so that he now has had his son attempt to defend David to him. Now his daughter has done it, and so he turns his rage to her. He's like, what, why did you deceive me? And that she lies to protect David and says, look, he, he said he would harm me if, he, if, if I didn't let him go. And so Saul lets it go, right, because now if it's true, he's got a reason to kill him, Right? And, and not wanting to turn any further against his daughter. But you just see um, things are crumbling, right? They're coming apart at the seams, and you can almost imagine Saul just being manic, right? Like he is losing it, wondering, how am I going to kill this guy? Why are people turning against me? And paranoia is beginning to reign. All right, let's pick up in verse 18. So now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah, right? This is where Samuel's from, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told to Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. Saul sent messengers again a third time, they also prophesied. And he then himself went to Ramah, and he came to the great well that is at Siku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went and he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah, and he and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and he lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? Right, it just kind of continues to get bizarre, right? Um, and, and so here's, here's the scene that we have. We see, right, that, that David basically goes, okay, Samuel's the one who anointed me as king, right? He's the one that kind of set this in motion, and so he goes to him, probably going, hey, what is going on? Like, am I really supposed to be king? Has God, has God missed something here? I don't feel like I've done anything wrong, and yet I am barely staying alive. Right? Maybe for you, you're going, oh yeah, Samuel's a part of this story, right? Because he's kind of been out um, for a few chapters. And so, what we see in this bizarre scene here, in 18 through the end of the chapter, is the Spirit winning over the physical four times. Right, that Saul finds out where he's at. It's roughly a 90-minute trip. He sends messengers, and they're there to basically arrest, to bring David back to Saul. We know that he's going to kill him, and that they are so overcome 
with what the Spirit is doing there that they just begin to prophesy. And so Saul's like, oh, I'll send some more. Same thing happens. I'll send some more. It happens a third time, right? And, And you would imagine that someone might go, God's in control. And yet what we've seen from Saul throughout 1 Samuel is that he is spiritually dense. Right? That he continues to miss what God is doing and he runs forward with his own clan. And so he goes. And, and what is important for us to note is that even the king of Israel right, cannot usurp the, the sovereignty of God. Right? He is not exempt from God right, showing his control. And God has been is gracious here. He's not dropping people dead or anything. They're just like spiritually prophesying. And so Saul heads that way. And what we have here is, is kind of two things happening. One, he's stripped, right? And what's he stripped of? His royal attire. Right? We're being reminded that God has already removed from him the, the, the kingship. He is no longer king. And so if you're going to come before me, to Samuel, to, to, to my voice, right? You're going to come not dressed as a king. Because you're no longer king. I've rejected that. We see that in 1 Samuel 15, 23, that he's been rejected as king. And yet there's a chance to repent here, right? Like you've seen your messengers prophesying, you're reminded that God is in control. You now go yourself, right? At some point there's a chance to go, okay, God, I can lay my plans aside and, and, and respect the fact that you're actually the king of this nation. You're the king of creation. And yet he doesn't, right? He's not going to repent. He is bullheaded. He's stubborn. And he's continuing to go believing somehow that he's in control even when God is showing that he is in a gentle fashion. And so what we have is, is really an undoing. It's a parody of how Saul came to power. Because if we go back to, to 1 Samuel 9, verse 6, right? He's out looking for his donkeys with his, his servant. And where do they end up? In Ramah, right? Not because Saul knew about Samuel, but because the servant knew about Samuel. Right? So he starts at Ramah, looking on, maybe there's someone here who can give us an answer. And in verse 11 of chapter 9, he ends up at a well, talking to some women, going, hey, we've heard there's like a, a holy man around here. And that they give him directions to Samuel. And we move to chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. And as one of the, the ways that God is affirming, I've called you to be king, he said, as you leave this, several things are going to happen. One of those things is you're going to come upon a group of prophets. The Spirit of God will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them. We go to verse um, 12 of that chapter, and people who knew Saul see him prophesying, as God has said he would, and they ask the question, is Saul also among the prophets? So we see him in Ramah, looking for Samuel, the Spirit of God rushing upon him, him prophesying and people asking this question. And then we move to chapter 11, verse 6, and we see him now as king, and the Spirit comes upon him to enable him, to affirm him, to give him power to lead well. And what is happening here in chapter 19, 18 through 24, is all of that's being reversed. All of that's being stripped away. Right? He's also going to Ramah, looking for Samuel. He stops at a water source to ask for directions to a place that he's been before. And the Spirit, though, now, instead of enabling him, affirming him, strengthening him, begins to strip him. 
to remind him that it wasn't in his power or in his might. Right? And so now when the question is asked, is Saul also, Saul also among the prophets? It's now a mocking. It's a joke. As he lays there stripped and naked, prophesying, looking a fool before Samuel, having been set down by the Spirit. Right? That he has been stripped of everything that he had been given. And so it's been a reversal and undoing of his kingship. And it's just a brief aside. It's why we would see something like this in 1 John. This is 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. He continues. He's basically giving right, an idea of like, how do you know? right? Because we see prophecy used. We see it abused. right? We, and so it's why we've seen Saul do this well, and he's now done it not well. Right? It's, it's that we don't just trust that when we see something like this, right, we test it. We look to see if it's from God. Um. So, so we end now with Saul kind of humiliated, David having been spared by the hand of God. We're going to go into chapter 20 now. Um, and so let's pick up in verse 1. So David fled from Naoth and Ramah, because Saul is incapacitated to some extent. And he came and he said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. Why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Right? So we see... David now going back to the palace, back to the son of the king, going, you, you don't understand, he wants me dead. And, and Jonathan going, no, no, no. Right? And, and, and David finally convinces him, no, this is what's taking place. And so they lay out a plan. Right? And mo- much of 20 is the laying out of this plan where there's a, a new moon festival. David is expected as a member of the court right, to be there. And they decide, you're not going to be there. And if my father's anger is kindled, if it, if it comes up because you're not there, we're going to know that he means to kill you. But if he's okay with it, if he takes the explanation I'm going to give him, right, then we'll know that, David, you're wrong. Jonathan, I'm right. He doesn't want to kill you. And he would tell me if he was going to do it. Right? And so they lay out this plan that he's going to say, I'm going to send you off to Bethlehem. Right? I'm sending you back to your family. That's going to be the explanation that you went back to, to, to celebrate with your family. And so throughout this conversation, right, um, they end. Let's, let's pick up in verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. Right? He's making a covenant here. saying, God is my witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed towards David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But it, should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more if I do not dis- disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, 
If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. Remember, at this point, he doesn't believe his father really is is David's enemy. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so in this covenant, right, Jonathan's going, I promise you I'm not going to betray you. Right? I'm, I'm going to do what I said. I'm going to let you know one way or the other what my father says. If I don't, may God do to me whatever happens to you. Right? He's making a covenant. But do you hear what he asks? Like he recognizes right, that his father is not going to be the king. Right? That, his, that Jonathan, excuse me, is not going to be the king. That the lineage is going to stop and that David will be the king. And look what he says in verse 14. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Right When, when there, a power move takes place and a new family or a new regime comes in, what would often happen? You wipe out all the survivors. Right? You don't leave someone left in that family who might have a claim to the throne or might be able to, to build a case against you. And Jonathan is saying, you're going to be king. Would you remember me? Right? I'm making a covenant with you here. And so now, the, the plan they make, right, is that here's how they're going to let him know. David's going to go hide, and Saul's going to go out for target practice, right? He's like, I'm going to shoot three arrows, and based on where I shoot them and what I tell the boy who I send out there, right, that's how you're going to know if, if it's good news or bad news. And if I tell him, hey, you haven't gone far enough, go further to find the arrows, you're going to know it means you need to leave. You've got to go. And the people will just think that I'm out there shooting. Um, and, if, and if that's not the case, then I'm going to tell you that my father's not angry at you. And so they go to the mill, right? And Saul notices David's absence, obviously. Look now um, in verse 30. Jonathan gives the explanation for why David's not there, 26 through 29 in verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, what, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? And Saul hurled his spirit him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Right, So you can imagine Jonathan sitting at this table, hopeful that David is wrong about his father. And then seeing his father begin to become angry with David, he doesn't like the response that Jonathan gives. And it ends right with him, right, insulting his son, insulting his son's mother, right? And trying to kill him. And he says, listen, do you not understand, son, that if if you don't kill David or if we don't get David killed, you're not going to be the king. You're not going to get the throne. God's already told him that. And God has proven over and over and over again, "You're you're not in control of this, I am. Jonathan has seen and recognized, realized this. Saul continues not to. And so you can imagine 
the chaos of this scene as, as Saul just continues to lose control and is willing to kill his own son who he believes has now betrayed him for the son of Jesse because I'm not even going to say his name. Right? I, don't, I don't have words for him. And he tries to guilt him, threaten him, and Jonathan now knows. And so here's how we're going to end this. Look at down at verse 41 and 42. So he runs out, they shoot the arrows, the message is given that David needs to escape. Verse 41. And as soon as the boy had gone, he's collected the arrows, gone back to the city. David rose from aside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground, and he bowed three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And so what this is setting up is that David is going to go out into the wilderness, right? And he's going to continue to be hunted and chased. We'll, we'll look at that in weeks to come. This is a, a section of Scripture where a lot of the Psalms are going to come from, right? And if you're familiar with the Psalms and David's talking about being hunted and sought after, this is the scene. This is what's going on in David's life as he is writing Psalms. Remember, Saul's anger here, and if we go back to chapter 10, when he's made king, do you remember what some of the men said? This guy? And they insult him. Like, we're not going to trust him, follow him, this guy? And that people wanted to put them to death. And what Saul do? He shows grace to people who are guilty. And now here we have David, the anointed of God, right? And he is innocent, and he's being told, I'm going to kill him. Right? That we just see that, that Saul has lost touch with reality. All right, so chapters 19 and 20, a lot going on, a lot of drama, and, you're, and there's probably the question of, okay, if I'm not in a power family like this, if I'm not in government like this, what does this story have to do with me? It's, it's interesting. I can see it turned into a show, but what do I need from it? So there's a few things I want us to take. Um, the first is this. Do you have a friend like Jonathan? Right, like the, the, This is what we're called to be friends. Like, in a way that is, that is deep and rich and meaningful. Jonathan was older. Um, I think as you read this, you feel like they're peers. He was at least 10 to 15 years older. Could have been closer to 25 or 30 years. So like, we're talking an older brother, potentially even like a father-like figure. That he loves David. He's, he's good to him. And listen, the, the emotion and the, the emotive language, the, the physical acts between Jonathan and David might make you a little uncomfortable. Right? And yet, if you turn to Acts 20, right, we see that when Paul is leaving the church in Ephesus, that the elders are weeping and kissing Paul right, as a sign of like, love and friendship, and that they're going to miss him. In John 11, we see Jesus weeping right, over Lazarus. Right? That, that we have an issue sometimes, it seems, with emotion, especially emotion between men. And yet, when you're in difficult circumstances when you're in the trenches together like David and Jonathan are, like that ministry would call us to, right? we need deep relationships. We need friendships where we are giving of ourselves and, and we're sharing our thoughts and our hearts and our motivation. Right? That, that this is a friendship to emulate. That we would, we would fight with one another for one another. Second is this. It's whose hand rescued David. Right? I think often when we, we go, man, David, right, 
he should have taken Saul out, or he should have done... We see that the hand of God continues to intervene to rescue David. There's no doubt about it, right? That when you have time after time, situation after situation, where a son and a daughter turn against the father, when messengers are overcome by the Spirit, when Saul strips down and is naked, right? Like, that God just continues to intervene to rescue David. Listen, we often look for ways to contribute to our salvation or to explain why it is that God saved us. Right? We were looking for, and, and yet, church, are we willing to just say it was the hand of God that intervened? That he, he just saved us. He rescued us. He made us His. Right? We receive it and walk in it. Listen, as a teenager, I was, um, I guess I was a weird, superstitious kid. I was a big baseball fan. The Yankees were good during that time period. And during the playoffs, I, like, I, I had like a little ritual. Like before a game, like I had to, I had to do the same thing, wear this, because I was contributing to their victories. Right? And I'm like, if I don't, like they're going to lose. And I mean, to my credit, they won the World Series in 96 and 98 and 99 and 2000. I'm still waiting on my ring, right? But like, and like, you know, it's a little crazy. And yet you still are like, but I can't not do it because I, I need them to win, right? We, we, we look to contribute to things that we're, we have no part in, right? Like, that God saves sinners. And he rescues David here, and it's by his hand that he does it, right? But here's the, here's the heart of what I want us to look at as we, as we consider this this morning. I want you to consider the situation that Jonathan was in. He's being forced to choose king. Who's he going to follow? Who's he going to serve? Who's he going to go after? Is it going to be his father who is king or David who is the not yet king? Right? It's that, that conversation that we see when Saul's anger in verse 30 was kindled against Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse? Right? What is going on here? Jonathan is having to choose, who am I going to be at peace with? And ultimately for him, it is, a, is it going to be with the king, or is it going to be with God? Church, we have a decision to make. Who are we going to live at peace with? The things of this world, or with God? Right? Like, are we going to take... So, like, listen, Jonathan's life would have been easier to have supported the king. He would have then been second in command. He maybe would have, you know, if we, if we remove God from the equation for just a second, he would have been the next king, right? He would have had power and prestige. He would have had his father's um, good pleasure because he's brought him David, right? You're going, there's a lot of reason for Jonathan to choose to follow his father, the king. And yet he chooses to follow David as king, right? Which means he is honoring, trusting, and obeying God, Right? Most of us don't have this decision laid out quite as violently before us. And yet we know that there are families, right, where believing parents struggle with unbelieving children or where children who desire to believe, right, who want to follow Jesus have unbelieving parents, right? And there's, there's difficulty, there's, there's a, a sense of, hey, you're choosing um, this Jesus fellow over us, over our family. Listen to how Jesus describes this. This is Matthew 10. Do not think that I've come to bring do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come not to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set man against father, daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, 
and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Listen, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Did Jonathan look like he was losing all that he would have gained as being son of the king? In order to actually gain something that it looked like he was losing, that he would be remembered by, by David. He would have a role. His son right, would, would, would gain. He got what it was Saul was promising, but that David could deliver on. Church, if we take this from this family situation into the world, the world is lying to you. And they're telling you there are things that they can offer you that they can't. Power. Pleasure. Greed. Right? Reputation. Glory. Honor. It's not theirs to give. Right? Saul's claims of, son, if we kill David, you get to be king, was a lie. It was a false claim, a false promise, because David, or Saul wasn't in control. God is. Right? And Jonathan chose and trusted and walked the harder path. Listen again to Jesus. This is in Mark 8. Beginning in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Right? Like he's, he's saying, listen, you're going to be offered a lot. Trust me, though. Trust me. And so, church, we are going to get, every individual will get glory and honor or shame. Right? We, we're going to get them both. And if we follow Jesus, you're going to have shame in this life. You will. You will be looked at as a fool, like Jonathan walking away from the king. But you will get glory for eternity. And there will be those who will have tremendous glory and honor in this life. And they will have opposed the living God. And they will have shame for all of eternity. Because they are separated from Him. Right? The same decision that is laid out before Jonathan is laid out before us. Walking the streets in Yemen... There were nights where people would weep over the fact that we were, we were not Muslim. And we would have conversations or arguments about Jesus. And, and I, I knew that the government could, if, if someone showed too much interest in Jesus, that they could remove their kids for, for no reason and never give them back. Or they could lose a job or a spouse or their life. And listen, there were nights where I would be walking home going, do I really, like, do I really believe this? Not intellectually, but do I really believe that if they trust Jesus and lose everything that He's enough, that He is sufficient, that He is worth it when, they, when their life gets like blown up. Yes. But it wasn't, it wasn't an immediate yes, right? I had to wrestle with that. I had to have the Spirit come to me and minister to me to go, no, 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 this isn't just an intellectual exercise. Right? A good 80 years of glory and honor is nothing without Jesus. It's nothing. And that's the call before us, what are we actually going to gain? What a gift it is to kids to have believing parents, right? Where, where this sharp division doesn't have to occur. 
that He would give us eyes to see what is being offered and held up as gleaming before you so that you could see Jesus is better than that. Would we remember that James 4.4 4 says right that friendship, peace with the world, is enmity with God. That we, we have a decision before us. We're going to trust Jesus even if all circumstances say we should trust the world. And the last thing, and we're only going to barely mention this because we're going to look at this in the weeks to come, is that David is sustained in the midst of chaos. Right? If, you, if you're interested this week, I'd, I'd encourage you to look at Psalm 59. Because in Psalm 59 was written, and your Bible will even have a note of this, during this scene of him being hunted in the house by David's or by Saul's men, right? That he wrote Psalm 59 in this scene. And so I just want to read a couple of verses from David. Deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord, God of hosts, are God of Israel. And then if we go to the end of Psalm 59, and he, he, he lays out the scene, the panic, the fear, what's going on, and he ends it with this. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength. I will, any strength is meaning God. I will sing praises to you, for you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Listen, God is faithful and trustworthy, and your circumstances do not reveal how God feels about you. Difficult circumstances, lack, um, disagreements, difficulty are not God saying, here's what I think of you. Your circumstances do not speak for God. God has spoken for Himself in pursuing you through the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus at the cross on your behalf, and His resurrection. Having left His Spirit for you and given you His Word where He says, I love you, and I've pursued you, and you can come and know Me. Right? So your circumstances don't speak, but Jesus does. And so your circumstances can be difficult, and we can cry out with David, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love, even in bad circumstances. Church, this is the, the call to us. He has given us what we need to see Him. Peace in Him is better than any peace the world offers. Freedom in Him is better than any freedom the world offers. Security in Him is better than any security the world offers. Riches in Him, knowing Him, being anchored in Him is better than any riches the world has to offer. And the choice is before us. Would we choose Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank You that in a a strange passage like 1 Samuel 19 and 20, a story that feels like we're watching a movie that we can be reminded that You have come for us, that You have rescued us, and that Jesus is sufficient for us. God, thank You that You give us everything that we need, God, but most, 
mostly that you give us you. Father, would we not believe that our circumstances present day are indicative of how you feel about us? Would we trust what you have said and what you have done in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus for that? So Father, when our circumstances are good, when we are in the throne as King David is, God, will we rejoice and celebrate and, and make much of you? And God, when we are hiding in the rocks, because death is but a step away, would we say the steadfast love of God has sustained us? God, in everything in between, God, would you in your spirit give us eyes to see where we have been entranced by the world, where we have, where we have picked that up instead of you? God, would you give us the strength and the courage to lay it down as Jonathan did to follow after the true king? God, we know we need courage. We need grace. We need your spirit to give us eyes. Father, would you do that? We trust you and we need you and we want you to be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.